Covenant to Your Bible, a custom design to your Bible reading plan with a weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. And we are continuing into the wonderful book of Deuteronomy and getting mm-hmm. uh, uh, close to halfway or right around halfway point uh, today. And so, and we'll do that as well as continue in Paul's awesome journeys in the book of Acts. And so uh, let's pick up where we left off in chapter seven of Deuteronomy. Yeah. And so um, we get uh, sort of introduced uh, to um, this land that, 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 Yes, God has his chosen people. He's going to take over uh, these Canaanites, these seven nations of Canaanites, um, which I referenced when we talked about the bread and, and the fish back in Luke, but um, that, that picture of seven sometimes representing the Gentile people. And, and so, um, but we're presented also with the problem of, of that inter- intermarriage in certain contexts will, will give, that the Israelites had the problem of intermarriage with the the women who caused Baal worship and things like that, mm-hmm. that there's ways that intermarriage that draws away from the worship of Yahweh is problematic for the people. And so there's some laws that are sort of given around that and, and they're wisdom laws are the same ways that uh, Jesus will, or Paul will teach about being unequally yoked. Uh, and, and that's, that's problematic. That, that idea of like, you have two different understandings of worship and worldview and what is important and all that. And so um, when you, when you share the beauty of marriage together in the midst of that, that's, that's very problematic. Yeah. I think one of the big things we see through here is just the fact that God is going to keep his covenant with his people because he chose them, not because they earned it, but because he chose them. And so they're to maintain purity and holiness in their new land as well. The same standards apply when they settle in the promised lands as applied in the wilderness. Yeah, and we get the a bit of a refrain that, that happens throughout this whole book. It's sort of like, all right, if you if you do well, like if you trust God, it will go well for you. And if you don't trust God, it will go poorly for you. And it's kind of a constant as if Moses is looking back on their whole experiences in the desert going, here's the biggest lesson that we've learned. If we do what God asks us to do, then it will go well. And he's promised that, particularly in the promised land. And so um, if they don't, then things will not. And so... Um, but they're told to remember, remember the Lord, their God. And so uh, they quote, Jesus quotes out of Deuteronomy here when he interacts with the devil um, in the desert. And so, um, but, but they sort of learn like, this is what the lessons, this is how God's been teaching us. Yes. He's been sort of testing, but it's, but it's about drawing out in us an understanding of humility, understanding a trust in God's provision amidst it all that, that it's not, it's trying to correct the pridefulness that Israel can have and say, no, 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 it was always God every step of the way who was providing and who was there. And and that we may learn that before we head into the promised land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like uh, the description of God in this chapter does a lot of intermingling between God's mercy and his justice and his forgiveness and his punishment. And it's a reminder that those are all characteristics of God that are worthy of worship that he is worthy of worship for. Yeah. And it's really warning them a lesson that Israel will constantly forget. And Mm -hmm. I would argue that we constantly forget, which is sort of like, all right, in, in provision, when, when things start going well for you, like, don't forget where that wellness came from and, and Israel. and, And like I said, us too, I think it's a struggle, and and I think it's where Jesus's struggle uh, in teaching around this is like, look, like wealth isn't the problem, but wealth can lead to a host of problems, and it's because um, it, it ends up sometimes pulling us away from our trust in God. So learn to be generous, learn to to not hoard and and to store up a bunch of stuff as if that's your security. Like learn to live this way, and then it will go well for you. There's there's joy. There's 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 instruction there of of like, hey, like. 
learning to, to not rely on all your sort of stuff and, and your accomplishments and, and all that kind of stuff is actually better for your life and less destructive uh, than not. And so uh, Jesus reminds them, look, it's not because of your righteousness. Like you are wicked, stiff necked people. It's, 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 it's because I'm, I'm awesome. Not because you're awesome. And, and I've made these promises to the patriarchs and, and, and that, that I'm doing the thing that I'm doing. And so he, he continues to, to remind them of these things of going, Hey, you're not that awesome. And he'll remind them of their reasons why they're not that awesome in a moment. Um, and, and he says things like, know, therefore that the Lord, your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness for you are a stubborn people. And so it's a bit of a shot, but it's a reminder to the people of going like, look, you guys are jacked up. And, and he reminds them of stories like the golden calf and, and things like that to, to, to point out their struggles. Um, and, and he says that he's like, Hey, remember the golden calf like that? You guys are messed up. But then in sort of a, a weird Moses take, and it's hard. Sometimes I want to read into Moses that he's being a little bit passive aggressive here, but he's like, remember the golden calf, but also remember how I interceded for you and like kind of saved your necks. Oh, and remember when you wanted to go in the land and you couldn't go in the land, but remember how I interceded for you and saved your necks again. I'm um, not bitter or anything because I'm not going to land, but um, there's a little bit of me that reads into Moses that way. I don't know if he really is, but um, there's definitely this reminder, Hey, you screwed up and we had to intercede. I had to ask God um, and God was gracious. God was merciful, even in our mess ups. Yeah. Here again is another picture of us seeing Moses as the mediator. Uh, for the people, just as Christ was that for us. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. And so Moses reminds them of the new tablets, puts them in the ark, um, reminds them again how he intercedes for them. Uh, and then he makes a statement around circumcising your heart, which I think is such a such a huge teaching as well. Um, but right before that, the, the sort of opening in that section, one of the things he says, here's what the Lord, our, our God, requires of us, which it's great. Here's here's it. Here it is laid out in a single verse: to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of His ways, to love Him, to serve Him uh, with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep His commandments and statutes. And then it finishes by saying that are for your good. And and it's that beauty that we talked about in the previous episode of like, look, the commands of God, the, the desire to to walk in all of these ways. It's ultimately for our good, that God's not just interested in his worship, though he certainly is primarily interested in that, but but he's interested in things that are for our good as well. Like it's not, those aren't mutually exclusive ideas to God. And, and so he's like, look, I want you to worship me, but but in worshiping me, this is good for you. And so um, it's such an important teaching. And then he says, circumcise your heart. So uh, in so doing, don't just follow it because it's a rule or regulation. And, and that's a struggle with sort of the, the idea of the physical circumcision versus the heart circumcision that, um, the, yes, there's, there's a physical one, but, uh, even as Jeremiah four will point out, like that doesn't guarantee covenant blessings, but what really is tied into the covenant is the circumcision of the heart, the faith, the belief, like that's what that symbol was given to Abraham for was to connect it to Abraham's acting by faith that was credited to him as righteousness. And so, um, yeah, that, that sort of picture of bind your hearts to God, not just have the outward appearance of that, but but have a true heart and faith in God. Yeah, I, I like the breakdown. I just want to go through quickly the breakdown of how God is described and what happens with Israel here. So we see God in chapter 10 
described as God of gods and Lord of lords. He's great, mighty, awesome. He's not partial and he takes no bribes and he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves and provides for the sojourner. So we see God's power and authority and then who he cares for. And then immediately the instructions go to Israel. You are to love the sojourner because you are sojourners. Fear God, serve him, hold fast to him, swear by his name. And these are all things that should be our responses to one that is God of gods and Lord of lords. Um, And then again, we see more descriptions of God. He's Israel's praise. He's Israel's God, the one who did great and terrifying things they've seen, fulfiller of the promise to Abram. So we see this summary of like, remember who God is, remember all he's done and everything that describes him. This is all warrants your praise and your worship. Yeah. Yeah, and then um, he reminds him once again that he led him out of Egypt, and even the story of Korah swallowing up the earth, swallowing up these guys. But um, I think that we get this little inst- instruction around like water and rain, and I think there's a really clear reason for that. If you're, they're coming out of Goshen, which is watered by the Nile, and it's watered all the time. The problem there is floods, not droughts as much. And um, though they certainly do experience droughts, but it's not a majority of the time. And so uh, they are about to enter a land where the the river is no longer the source of water, uh, but but rainfall. Um, so they're going to plant most of the time on the western side of the mountains in Israel. And so um, they get rainfall from the Mediterranean, but that's not always consistent. But not only that, but the Canaanites um, are farming people and, and their gods are related to the farms. So uh, their gods of fertility are related to the seasons and the, and the harvests and all these kind of things. And there were all sorts of uh, ceremonies. There's all sorts of terrible things, part of the ceremonies uh, that was involved in their worship. And so God is making clear to these people, hey, this is going to be different. You're going to have to rely on the rain and not the river. But like, just know I am the God of the rain too. So when you start encountering all these uh, Baal or Molech or Asherah worshiping people, just know it is not Baal, Molech, and Asherah that bring the rain. It is Yahweh that brings the rain. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to see them now have instructions of like, so when you go tear down all those, all those altars to these gods that don't actually bring the rain uh, and worship me alone. And so he says, I'm setting before you today, a blessing and a curse. And once again, that's a refrain of like, there's, there's two ways that this book will constantly present to us. And so when they get there, they need to tear up all the sacred spaces, all the poles, whatever it is that they encounter, um, that Yahweh should be worshipped alone. Uh, and not just anywhere. Um, there's, there should be a specific place for Yahweh to worship. But if you live far away, hey, there'll be some provision for how you can, when you have to show up and when you can simply worship from your home. Um, but we're about to get a shift again towards this Deuteronomic code, as it was called, the sort of um, law within Deuteronomy as well. Yeah, so this is where we'll move into the specifics about the covenant stipulations, the details of what are required for worshiping God. And it kind of begins with this idea that we worship God in his tabernacle, not in other places. It doesn't count if you go to Baal's temple and and do it for the Lord. We worship God how he requires, not what we think we want to do. And a lot of these laws, and there are a lot of chiasms over the book of Deuteronomy, and we're not highlighting a ton of them, but through this whole section, one of the central pieces, uh, because we're going to see a tithe, and then we're going to see a tithe in the back end. We're going to see protection laws for socially weak, and we're going to see that in the back end. We're going to see public institutions of office, family, sexuality, some of those kind of things. And then right in the middle, there's this whole section on preserving life. And, And I think it is a driving force of God's laws of going, look, at the end of the day, I do. As much as there's some death related to some of these laws, his desire is to preserve life and to care for those who are on the outsiders and and to care for for life itself. And so um, 
Sometimes we view God's law as like punishments and death, but but sometimes God's communicating, no, 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 what I'm after is life. Mm-hmm. Are there circumstances? Yes, but what I'm after is life. Yeah. And so there's warning against idolatry. Don't be like the other nations. And there's a reminder, once again, child sacrifice. So um, it is such a part of that ancient worship, particularly amongst those fertility tribes, that child worship was a part of their worship. And it, like for all intents and purposes, it's just terrible. Um, and so it's a reminder to the Israelites of going, you have to be the people who are not sacrificing children. Right. Life matters. And so, and that's why all these conversations around converting away, like towns that convert and why the punishment seems so harsh. It's because of just how wicked some of the cultic practices were that, that the response needs to be harsh like these people are putting babies on burning altars and at some point there's there's judgment that has to come to that mm-hmm. so we get clean and unclean food as well uh, probably the most random of the highlights is don't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk which uh, to this day people eating kosher don't mix dairy products like cheese with meat um, and it's related to that one verse which I think is a misinterpretation of that verse which I think had to do with pagan practices more than um just the the nuance of meat and cheese, but that's another story. And then the tithes, 10% of grain, wine, and oil every three years that there was to be more given. Uh, and once again, this ties into a constant theme in this book too, of like the the outsider, the, the sojourner, those who don't have anything would be provided for and they would be cared for in, in this story. And it's often tied into a statement from, from God saying, look, you do this because I you guys need to remember that you were taken out and and sojourners that you were enslaved and then you were sojourners. So make sure you treat the slave and the sojourner very, very well. Yeah. Consider the inverse of this passage. If it were to say the opposite, it would say, you shall not tithe. You shall neglect the Levite. You shall not tithe toward the Levite sojourner, fatherless widow, and your Lord, your God will not bless you in the work of your hands. So we see here, I mean, the reason God commands us is the non-inverse, the actual text that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands and that you do. We are invited to be part of God's work among his people and among the nations. Um, And the only result of our generosity, even in modern day to the church and to the vulnerable is going to be blessing. Yeah. Uh, And just to make an interesting New Testament connection, there is provision here to exchange your crops for cash uh, in order to not have to carry like bundles and bundles of crops on your journeys. And so um, this law presents all sorts of uh, problems by Jesus's time when there's money changers and other things in the temple. And then uh, sabbatical year. Uh, So once again, we get a repeat of this idea that every seven years we're to forgive debts. Even if the seventh year is like right around the corner, you you still got to um, loan or be generous to to those that would borrow from you. Um, And then servants or slaves are set free every seventh year, whether they've been working for you for one year or six years. um, As long as it's that sabbatical year, uh, they should be set free. And this is generosity based and built around grace. When you have more than enough and God gives you everything you need, you can also share it freely. And so if we are people who are unwilling to share or give freely, are we believing that we are responsible for providing for ourselves or are we trusting God's provision as we are faithful to do the work he set before us? Yep. Reminder, Passover that they should celebrate. Um, This is one of the festivals that does require a pilgrimage to the tabernacle or the temple eventually. Um, But the other ones, they can practice kind of on their own other than the Day of Atonement. And so the Feast of Weeks, Celebration of the harvest, Feast of Booths, uh, celebration of the end of the harvest, but also a reminder of their time uh, in 
Um, or the Feast of Booths, not that. That's the Feast of Trumpets. But the Feast of Booths is a reminder of their time in the wilderness. They set mm-hmm. up booths. If you drive by um, an Orthodox Jewish area or even a Reformed Jewish area, you may see um, a little hut set up for a week um, out, out front of their places. So like here, if we were to go near the Hillel Center at Emory or the Jewish Center at Emory, uh, it would have a little booth out during this week. And so uh, they are to enact justice and they're so they are to, to be impartial and are uh, there to practice impartiality and, and be tr- truthful that, that they would judge in such ways that they're not giving bribes and um, in, in such a way that justice is justice. Mm-hmm. So for forbidden four is a worship. We kind of just covered this a little bit, but there are Asherah poles and things like that. Asherah is the female God uh, to go with kind of Baal. Um, and so both of them together kind of represent fertility. Uh, and so they would set up these poles that were meant to be phallic. Uh, and so, um, it was sort of this, this picture that the things that had to be destroyed. Um, and then they're reminded to bring their best to worship, which, um, when you get to Mount, we'll get to Malachi, uh, Malachi's biggest indictment towards the priesthood is around this conversation of, of him saying, look, like you're offering the, 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 the leaders of Israel are sort of like, what do we do wrong? And, and he's like, look, you brought blind animals to your sacrifice and you offer those that were lame and sick. Like you're doing all the things I actually commanded you not to do. And, and it's a struggle uh, for for the leadership in Israel, certainly in Malachi's day. Yeah. So again, a re- reiteration that these forms of worship are forbidden because they are coming against God's design for life and us being image bearers. When they are defiling or desecrating or taking the lives of other image bearers, it's like it's abhorrent to God because he he is a God of life. Yep. And so. Um, I think we get one of the more interesting sections in the book of Deuteronomy, these laws concerning Israel's kings, which feel out of time. And there's all sorts of reasons and conversations around that. Um, But there hasn't been a whole lot of talk of kings up to this point, but now it's sort of like, Hey, um, yeah, sure. You can appoint a king and it has to be a fellow Jew. You can't have a foreigner. Um, And then it says things like he can't, he can't gain wealth or have a bunch of wives. And you're sort of like as a listener going, wait, wait a minute. I mean, I remember at least one of those kings having a lot of wives and both of them ultimately having a fair amount of wealth. And so um, we see this as particularly as the book of Chronicles goes uh, more than we'll see in Samuel and um, in Kings. But uh, in Chronicles, there's definitely this picture of like David's turning point, not being Bathsheba's story, but but being around, hey, let me gain, uh, let's raise a whole lot of money to build, uh, to build basically this little empire in, in Jerusalem. And then certainly the beginning of Chronicles, uh, Second Chronicles 1, Solomon, like all the description of Solomon is exactly the opposite of this verse. It's like, hey, he has this many horses and he has this many chariots and he got them all from foreign people. And, and it's like everything that this, these kings are instructed not to do, the writer of Chronicles goes, let me describe Solomon and let me, let me reference this chapter in Deuteronomy and just show you that Solomon went the opposite way of what God told him to do. And it's so, it's so great. And uh, we'll get there when we get to first, second Chronicles one. Yeah. And the priests and Levites continue to be provided for, um, over and over. And this is like a refrain. It's like, we, we want to make sure that the priests are provided, priests are provided, priests are provided. Um, which, yeah, because they don't have a land. They don't have an inheritance that they will pass on to the next and to the next and to the next, like all the other tribes. And so, um, and, and maybe there's connections to us as people who don't have a land per se, but but our inheritance is heaven and that's what the Levites have. And so they are provided for, even though their inheritance is still in heaven, just as much as God still provides for us as priests, even though our inheritance um, is not here in this world. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, abominable practices. Um, so no sorcerers, no spells, no, no talking to ghosts and dead people, um, no child sacrifices again. And, and so you know, some of the cultic practices as we would identify them as well as child, practice, child sacrifices off the table. Yeah. And, and when people believe, when we believe that God dwells with us, we don't need to go to a person to communicate with someone from the dead to find out what we need to find. We have access to God and he reveals to us what we need to know. Yep. No Ouija boards. Right. And so, uh, and then a new prophet like Moses, which is a great promise um, mm-hmm. that there's going to be one coming that, that yes, Moses is sort of wrapping up the story here, but there's going to be another one. It's not Joshua, but there will be this one who will come and, and he will be like Moses. He will be amongst his brothers, but he will be speaking in ways that even Moses didn't speak. And, and we will see that ultimately play out. And, 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 and the New Testament writers definitely pick up on this idea. Um, we saw this already in X3 um, with Peter, but the writer of Hebrews certainly picks up on it as well. Um, that, that Jesus is this greater Moses, that he was a greater prophet than Moses. Um, and he's the last like true prophet. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So let's jump to the new Testament, picking up right in the middle of the council. And now the switch to the letter from the council. Um, and they're about to write a letter to this hot spot. So Jerusalem is certainly a hot spot, and now Antioch is growing as a hot spot. Um, and then one of the starting points is they say to the brothers who are of the Gentiles, like that is the most shocking conclusion that they left the council with. Yeah, um, so that they good. don't call them they don't call them outsiders. They don't even call them um, children of 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 the family of Abraham, like like a convert would be. They call them brothers. Like we are united as as a family now. It's not stages of inclusion. It is true inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I do find it so interesting that like this is like the council's the council's one of the turning points of of the story. I mean the the certainly Peter and Cornelius is like the the true new new nature of the Holy Spirit being poured out. But this council is like deciding on one of the most important decisions in the history of the church. And they phrase it as it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It's like, Oh, like sometimes that, that wars a little bit against some of my preconceived notions of how I think like the Holy Spirit like moves that, that sometimes, yeah, we make decisions based upon wisdom, trusting that the Holy Spirit in us is, is giving us the mind of Christ to make these decisions. But, but we have to move forward and we have to wade into those, those unknown, not perfectly clear waters in, in ways that we say, look, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to make this decision. Uh, yeah, and this isn't a thus saith the Lord sort of decision either. It's a matter of being discerning, yeah, and using wisdom and using our minds and our experiences. Yeah, and, it, and it's a communal decision making. Like they came together. There's probably disagreement in that room. We don't get that present presentation necessarily in X in, in X fifteen, but uh, it seems like there there's people that seem to continue to follow and troll. So uh, who knows how unified they were? But um, the idea of binding and loosing, I think, is played out in this council. Like the council's sitting there going, "Hey, like." we think scripture leads this way. We don't have like one clear verse on exactly what a Gentile convert looks like. And so we're going to make this decision and what we bind here on earth will, will be bound in heaven and, and, and what we lose here on earth will be loose in heaven. And this is our decision and we're going to move forward with that. So let it be known amongst the churches that this is a decision. Mm-hmm. And they all move forward with that. They sort of find agreement in that, even if they disagree that there's still unity uh, amongst the church around that. Mm-hmm. So then, Paul and Barnabas head out, uh, but then pretty quickly they have a disagreement, yeah. a sharp disagreement. Sharp one. And it's interesting because Mark left 
right after the Sergius Paulus conversion story. It wasn't because of persecution per se. None of that has been laid in there yet. Um, but but this this whole thing that happened in Cyprus had just gone down and then Mark leaves. And I wonder if Mark is not okay with sort of this Gentile world. And then Paul's like, okay, we're going back out and we're going to the mission of the Gentiles. But, but Mark bailed on us and didn't seem to be on board with this whole Gentile thing. And so I don't want him to come with me again. Now, whether Paul was right or not, I don't know. But um, And we will see by 2 Timothy the reconciliation, this process. But God uses that. I mean, Barnabas goes and does his mission. Paul goes and does his mission with Silas. And maybe more people are reached in the process. Who knows? But um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's okay to have a like kind of a fundamental methodology difference and still be unified and working to fulfill the same goal. But once again, the imperfect first century church. And then uh, Timothy joins Paul and Silas along the way. Um, it's, it's interesting. There's, there's sort of a, when we get to the conversation around circumcising t- Timothy, I think there's multiple ways that that, that can go or be interpreted. And um, we're introduced to Timothy's lineage. So we find out that his dad was Greek, but his mom was Jewish. And so... Um, uh, so what he would be considered would have been a little bit as the outsider. He wouldn't have been uh, a true Jew because of uh, his dad's practice. And therefore he wouldn't have been circumcised either because his dad couldn't circumcise him. And so um, depending on how you interpret that, maybe he's considered an outsider and, and depending on his age, he probably couldn't really convert uh, out from under his family yet. And so there's all these, there's all these parts that are, that are in there. And, and so um, either way, he would have been considered an outsider. And then this student of Gamaliel shows up and says, Hey, come follow me. And, and in some ways I think Peter or Paul's enacting Jesus here, because I think Paul will go on to, to select just a few disciples that will really pour into, including Timothy, including Titus amongst others. And so, um, Paul's doing what Jesus does and finds the sort of like not totally accepted individual and, and goes, Hey, you are part of my team. I want to pour my life into you. Come go on this journey with me. Um, and then he does get circumcised. Now he might've been circumcised because, um, if Timothy's working amongst Jews, he doesn't want that to be a, 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 a barrier, a, a stumbling block for the Jews to, to go, Hey, you're a Gentile, you're an outsider. What do you have to say about Judaism? Um, or it could have been that he hasn't been allowed to be circumcised. And in some ways this could actually be a declaration in the opposite way of Paul saying, look, we don't have to be circumcised anymore. Um, and, and Paul will beat that drum over and over and over and over and over as a way to invite the Gentiles in. But I wonder if this guy who has been denied that and has always desired that because he grew up with his mom's faith is saying, look, like I've never been welcomed in. And and Paul's like, look, circumcision doesn't mean anything now because we're all together. So if you want to be circumcised, great. And let that be a declaration to all these people that have excluded you, the, these these Jews that have kicked you out because you were half Gentileness, that all are included now. Because Tim Luke does seem to highlight, hey, uh, they all know that this guy has a Gentile dad. Um, so therefore, um, he shouldn't be circumcised and then he chooses to be. So, uh, and either knows? way, whichever way you land on it, the the work was done for the sake of ministry, not for his own comfort or yeah, ease yeah. or preference. It was done because of his witness. Yeah, whether whether declaration or assimilation, it was absolutely done for that purpose, um, to, to declare part of the gospel. And then we get the Macedonian calls where pulling up some maps are super helpful, kind of knowing where this age, the area is, um, that, that Paul and Silas and Timothy and 
soon to be Luke, um, would have had to go to sort of the, the north end of Turkey. Um, and so they're, they're traveling in those areas. They're, they're sort of forbidden from going into sort of central western Turkey, which would have been um, where all the, like if you read Revel- the beginning of Revelations, this is where all those churches sort of are. Um, they become sort of John's churches for a lot of reasons. And so, um, but we do get the first occurrence of we. So Luke certainly is joining in on the story at this point in time. Uh, we don't know exactly where Luke picks up, but um, he's he's participating now. And so they get a call to go basically to Greece. They've been doing all their work in what's considered Asia Minor or Turkey. Uh, but now they're, they're told, hey, cross over and go over to Greece. And, and so they do. But the first town they get to is Philippi. Um, and Philippi has got no synagogue. So Paul's missionary practices uh, seem to not play out here because there's no synagogue for him to go to. And so he goes, it seems like, to where maybe the few Jews or, or Gentile worshipers are. And it's like the small group that meets down by the river. And, and, and he encounters this woman named Lydia, who is a worshiper of God, at least identified that way, which probably puts her in this sort of Gentile uh, Yahwist group. And, and he, God opens her ears to hear what Paul has to say. She's baptized uh, immediately and, um, and her whole household, which gets into a, a little bit of a complicated territory where people certainly disagree on the interpretation of the household baptism. Uh, some go um, a very, uh, and, and Presbyterians and stuff will go very covenantal on that, where um, circumcision and the household of circumcision will be applied uh, to baptism as well. So uh, you baptize your whole family from from birth on as part of like, we are a family covenanting together. Um some will, will say, well, we don't know whether there's kids in the house. And so maybe uh, she just went home and proclaimed the gospel and they make decisions a lot more communally back then. And, and still, you still find this today in the mission field. Um, you'll have whole villages convert to Christianity at the same time because decisions around the God of the village were made together and the God of the family is made together. Um, and, and so um, maybe that's happening here. There's all sorts of different ways that, that uh, we have to argue from a little bit of science. Um, and so uh, I tend to go a, a little bit of the, we don't know clearly that um, this is about baptizing the babies in our household and all these other things. And so um, since that's from silence, I don't want to make a theology of baptism from this text. And so, um, yeah, but clearly her whole household um, comes to faith um, in, in some ways. And so um, who all is part of that household? I don't know. Uh that's, that's, that's conjecture and silence. And so, um, but, uh, there seems to be some sort of communal conversion that's happening right now. Yeah. It's cool that she is the first convert in Philippi and she's from the region that they were just forbidden to go to. Yeah. And the so God had a plan. They may not have fully understood what it was and why God was telling them not to go there, but there was, it's cool that they got to see fruit of that anyway. Yeah. And, and the definition of household like it's just confusing too. So that can be servants and slaves too. So are they coming to faith? Anyway, so it's, it's complicated, but um, she's a woman of means too. Uh, and, and that, that'll help Paul certainly along the way as she offers hospitality, um, all that kind of stuff. Making purple fabrics is an expensive practice in the first century. And then Paul and Silas um, have this interaction with this little girl um, who uh, is at least in the English is demonic. So she's yelling out all these things and she seems demonic. I mean, we see demons in, in Luke and, and, and the other gospel writers who are going around shouting things out at Jesus and are shouting truthful things at Jesus. And so this girl is certainly representative of those similar stories. But um, as I said, the Greek actually reads that she has the spirit of a snake or a Python and, and they're right by this shrine to Apollo called the Pythian Apollo, the Python Apollo. 
Apollo. And, and so for them, Apollo has power and he's represented with this Python. And, and so this girl has this spirit of Apollo or Python and, and Paul drives it out. And, and I think in so doing, Luke is doing a thing as the storytelling would go of going, look, like Paul has the power over the, the gods of these Greek cities. Apollo has no power and Zeus has no power. These people have no power. It's, it's truly the Holy Spirit in Paul that's doing this. And so, um, yeah, it's mm-hmm. so good. And so it causes some civic unrest, um, which will be a familiar theme. We'll see that in Ephesus and other places where um, they do things to drive out darkness. So uh, the kingdom coming is driving out some of the darkness of the cities, abusive practices, uh, idolatry, whatever it may be. And so those who make money off these wicked things, like these guys who are making money off this little girl, now have no money. They're not making that income. And it causes the city to suddenly go, this is not okay. Um, And then I think there's some anti-Semitism of going, these men are Jews. And we already know there's not a lot of Jews in the city. And, and it seems like Paul doesn't argue that, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen. He's not going to say that until after he's jailed. And so I think they're, they're sort of like, we, we need to do something about them. And so they get arrested and they get flogged and imprisoned. Um, and, and so we see Paul's first imprisonment amongst many. And, um, it's presented in such a way that it's like, Paul doesn't see this ever as like a hindrance. Um, it's always like, look, like, if you're going to throw me in prison, I'll, I'll just sing. <laughs> like, what are you going to do to me? And, and he keeps going that direction. Uh, and as John Stott says, instead of cursing men, he, he blesses God and they, they sing. And in this abusive Roman prison, there's singing coming from it. Um, and then there's sort of a supernatural earthquake, this release that, that causes them all to, to be free. And so the guard rightfully is like, I'm going to kill myself because uh, he would have been killed by Rome anyways, probably for this. And um, Paul and Silas stay behind. And, and I think for them, the, the, the moment, the, the sort of salvific moment that can be played out is more important to them than their personal freedoms and comfort and running away. Right. And, and when the circumstances says escape, love for them says stay for the sake of the soul. And, and the guards are moved. And at least this guard is moved. And it's not by the, the supernatural earthquake that released them that he's moved. He's moved because of their compassion and, and the truth that they had to say. And so, um, once again, the miracle is not the main thing. It's like the signpost that leads to the substance of, of the gospel itself. Yeah, and we, you know, we see Peter in prison, and he walks out of jail, and Paul doesn't. And it's not that one is right or wrong, but they're each obeying the Spirit and being led by the Lord in each specific circumstance. Yeah, because Peter, Peter had a little angel to, to lead him around, but Paul's like, all right, I'm free, but there's this guy. <laughs> And, and maybe this is a moment, maybe this is an opportunity in my suffering and in all these circumstances, however it's going to play mm-hmm. out, my role is to make sure this Gentile hears the gospel and, and he stays for that. So uh, we got a couple of Psalms and a proverb. Uh, it's a Psalm 114. This is sort of a recalling of some of the Exodus Joshua stories, leaving Egypt, the Red Sea, the Jordan, meeting God in the mountains, uh, getting water from rocks. It's all in that text. It's a little short Psalm, but it feels like uh, the point of the psalm is like God uses all these things in nature, and then He's almost calling nature to come worship. So, other psalms will say like, "Let everything that has breath praise the Lord," but this one's going to be like, "Let everything that doesn't have breath as well play, praise the Lord." Like the rocks will cry out. Like that is mm-hmm. that is creation singing and responding to God. Yeah, and He uses that creation and the authority as over creation to provide for Israel and to yep. glorify His name. Yep, and then the Psalm one forty six, uh, which includes. 
uh, when we get to Isaiah 61, we'll see like there's definitely some language that Psalm 146 plays out similarly around uh, that God is the one who's going to set captives free. He's going to give sight for the blind. Text that Jesus will read at the beginning of Luke uh, of Luke's gospel. Um, and then just so trust in God. Don't trust in princes. Don't trust in the people of this world. Trust in God who, who does all these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me see just again reiterated that all people, all souls have equal value in the eyes of God. Yep. And then Proverbs 21, which once again, you got a lot of great one-liners uh, all throughout scripture, like um, those who guard their mouth and their tongues, keep themselves from calamity, which like, gosh, if you read James, James, it's probably like, yep, that's the one. <laughs> and so we see stuff like that, or the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord, which is like such a beautiful microcosm of human responsibility and God's sovereignty. Like, look, you've got work to do. Get ready. Do these things. Know that you have to enter the battle, but the victory itself is still the Lord's. And so um, that will be um, a bit of the tension as we get into some of the the stories of, of post-Torah of like, um, where does victory rest and who really is the victor in the battles? And so want to talk about next week? Sure. All right. Old Testament. There's lots of reputation in here, but I just love that final exhortation in Deuteronomy 30. Uh, think about, think about it, what it meant for them then and think about what it means for us now. And as you hit the new Testament, we're going to check out or we're going to move to First Thessalonians. So with Paul and his story so fresh on your mind now, how does that impact how you read the book of First Thessalonians? Yep. Um, and as you read uh, in, in the Old Testament, like notice, notice the amount of protection and provision God gives for life, for the foreigner, for the outsider. Like, it is so crucial for God. And um, sometimes we have conversations, and I know church world, there's definitely a little bit of debate on like social justice and what places have in the church. But like, gosh, you go back to reading just God's law and what he instructs Israel to be like as this nation of priests is to be people who care for the foreigner, the outsider, the marginalized, all those sort of things time and time again. And then the New Testament, <clears throat> yeah, uh, Paul will continue to go out throughout some cities. Um, just look at the different approaches as he goes because like, it's so interesting of like how he approaches one city to the next. And, and he has different, some things are the same, some of his approaches, some of his missiology of like, let me go to the synagogue and the Greeks, but but sometimes it's 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 unique to the towns that he's going to. Um, and, and just pay attention to that. And we'll probably talk through some of the, the, the different pieces of what those towns are like and culture and, and things like that, because that seems like a good role for this podcast. So um, thanks y'all. And we look forward to next week. Thank you. Thank you.